This is your opportunity to win a Porsche Classic watch. So just go to the Collector Car Podcast on Instagram, like the watch promo image, share with your friends, and then go to CollectorCarPodcast.com and answer a question from this episode. Every friend you tag multiplies your chances of winning. The rules are posted at the CollectorCarPodcast.com. Metron Garage is a company designing unique garages, condos, and other structures specifically for the auto enthusiasts. They've got eight models to choose from, including two-story options, which I think is super cool, while with a very modern look and feel to them. And they come in all sizes, and they're fully customizable. You can check out them today and start specking your own ultimate garage at metrongarage.com, where you can request a catalog or talk to someone to learn more. So be sure to check it out. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Okay, this is the Collector Car Podcast. As always, this is Greg Stanley, and I'm excited to have a special guest this week who knows more about cars than about anyone in the world, in my opinion. Ken Gross. Ken, how are you doing today? Greg, I'm uh, I'm just fine and happy to be here. I really appreciate you joining the show, and I say that somewhat in jest, but not totally in jest, because you really know a lot about cars. You've really been involved in cars for such a long time, so I'm thrilled to have you on. You don't know this, but I've been wanting to get you on my podcast for about three years now, and I had a friend that was going to introduce us, never quite happened, and then I ran into you at Greenbrier a couple months ago. And uh, it just happened to work out well that Haggerty wanted me to follow up with you anyway. So everything kind of aligned in the last couple of weeks. I'm thrilled to have you on. And you are an automotive historian, a journalist, a curator, a Concord judge, and a lot more. Uh, I know a lot of my listeners know who you are and some of the work that you do. But if you could, could you just kind of give us an overview of how you got involved in this whole car world? Go back a couple decades, if you would, and just kind of get how did you get your foot into the car world and then a little overview of what you're doing today. Yeah, well, what I um, always say to people is that I uh, wanted to be an auto writer, but it took me a number of years to figure out how just to do that. Right. Uh, when I got out of college, um, I went to graduate school in business, and uh, I had worked previously writing ad copy, and I wrote ad copy when I first started. I worked for several advertising agencies, and I kept wishing and thinking how in the world do you become a car writer and i looked at some of these folk and i thought well they're they're former engineers you know that's how they did it or they're uh, they have a mechanical background i don't exactly have that although i worked in a gas station um, as a kid um, so i wrote letters to road and track and to other magazines and got nice letters back that said sorry we're not interested you know we don't know who you are and we don't accept this type of thing and Right. But in the meantime, I collected magazines and books uh, because uh, I I'm interested in the su- was interested in the subject. And I bought a 1934 Morgan, an MX-4 matchless-powered three-wheel super sport. <laughs> I bought it because Ken Purdy, who was really my idol and probably still is, uh, wrote a whole 
chapter about Morgan's. And uh, Morgan was the only vintage car I could afford. And I bought it sight unseen out of a road and track ad, because that's how we used to buy cars, right. either road and track or with um, the New York Times. And uh, Rich Taylor, who at that point was the managing editor of Car and Driver, but was leaving to become the editor of Special Interest Autos, uh, one of the Hemmings publications, came up to my house to write a, um, an article about my Morgan. And he saw that I had uh, quite a few books and magazines about uh, cars, and I told him I was enthusiastic and uh, and that I wanted to be a writer. And he said, well, I, I probably don't really need a writer, but uh, I, I will need a copy editor. And I didn't know what a copy editor was, so I quickly found out and realized that what he wanted me to do was check and uh, and look at the articles that were being written. And I, I said, I'll do that, but I really want to write an article. And he said, well proof this first. And so I, I did that. And lo and behold, he gave me an assignment to write. He said, I'd like, like you to do a drive report on a 1949 Buick sedan at, do you think you could do that? And I, I said, I'd, I'd sure like to try. And so I researched the Buick and I wrote the article exactly the way they were in special interest autos. And he looked at it and he said, this is pretty good. He said, you obviously had some help. And I said, no, I wrote it myself. And he said, well, how'd you like to write another one? And, uh, and that's uh, that's what I did. And I, I began writing for Special Interest Autos. And through Alice Stein, a wonderful uh, lady, now deceased, who had a, an automotive bookstore in New York City, uh, she introduced me to the editors of GQ. And they needed a part-time person. And Diversion needed a part-time person. So here I had my full-time job. And I was doing part-time writing for a number of magazines. And I did that from about 1973 to... Um, uh, 1986, when I decided at that point that I had enough contacts, enough people, and then I had a supportive spouse at the time who, who basically said, go for it. Uh, David E. Davis was starting Automobile Magazine. I wrote him a four-page letter and said, here's what I think you should be doing in your magazine. He treated me to a three-hour lunch. We'd never met one another. And wow. uh, and that was the, the kind of kicker where I thought, well, I've got Automobile Magazine to write for now. So I quit my full-time you know, corner office, high paying day job. People thought I was totally crazy to do that. Uh, and and I, my boss said, you're obviously having a midlife crisis. We, uh, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll give you your job back in a couple of months if this doesn't work out. And uh, I was determined it would work out and it did work out. So over the years, I've written for dozens of publications. Um, at last count, I've written 24 books and I'm working on three more. Um, I've done television screenplays, but everything about automobiles. So, I mean, my dream has really come true. I, I wanted to write about cars, and uh, that's what I do. And I yeah. hope what as long as I'm, I can put hands on a keyboard. Right, right. And you writing about cars is why we're talking today, because of the Haggerty article you wrote, or three articles, about the Hera collection. Now, I do want to get into that shortly, but I do want to know, what are some of the other aspects of the automotive world you're involved in as a curator, as a Concord judge, are you, you know, kind of everywhere at all times? I mean, uh, you're, it sounds like you're on the road a lot. Well, I, I do travel a bit, but um, the other elements, let's say, that I work with, uh, I was the director of the Peterson Automotive Museum in Los Angeles for nearly five years, which was a wonderful opportunity to, um, to learn about the museum business. And that, uh, through that, I was able to... Um, uh, to become a guest curator for a number of fine art museums, curating exhibitions of fine cars, art deco cars, um, 
dream cars, concept cars, and so forth uh, for museums from uh, literally all over the country. And uh, I did that as an adjunct to my writing about automobiles. Uh, so my museum exhibitions, they've now been in 13 different museums. Uh, last I, I counted, I think over a million people have seen these various exhibitions. People who've been a little surprised to see a fine car in a fine art museum, but quickly understand that they're looking at kinetic art, rolling sculpture, uh, some, some of the best technical achievements, the stylistic achievements of the last century. Uh, so that's been a very exciting element, and I'm working on two museum exhibitions uh, now for the, for the future. You mentioned Pebble Beach. I've been a Pebble Beach judge for 31 years. It's a total privilege. I, I've judged at nearly every concours in the United States and four or five of them around the world. But Pebble Beach is, to me, the, the ultimate. Uh, we just get an extraordinary assortment of cars, uh, wonderful owners, fellow judges of the highest caliber. Um, it's, it's my dream weekend every, uh, every year. Um, a, a few years ago, I almost shouldn't tell you the story, but my, uh, my brother was getting married to his high school sweetheart. They'd married other people on the way, along the way, but they finally rediscovered one another. And, um, and Pete said, I want you to be my best man. And uh, here's the, uh, the date. It's August something. And I said, oh, my God, Pete, it's Pebble Beach. And he said, well, you skip it one year. I said, no, you never, you never skip it. <laughs> you never skip it. <laughs> so they never, re- bless their hearts, they changed the date of the wedding. Um, I was no longer the best man, but, <laughs> but I did go, and, uh, and, but I didn't miss Pebble Beach because you don't miss Pebble Beach. Right, right. You know, take the bullet. Don't, don't be best man, but you're still at the wedding. So that's nice. That's nice of him to do that. My brother and I are still on very good terms. We talk each week, so it's all well. But I, I guess... Part of where I feel so fortunate is that I am passionately interested in automobiles in almost every aspect. I think of myself as a, a kind of ecumenical car enthusiast. I mean, I like everything from hot rods to Duesenbergs. And so what I've been able to do over the years is write about all these things that uh, that interest me, cars that interest me, events and people. Um, and it's just really a lot of fun. Uh, I, I would love to be able to collect cars. Uh, my uncle... Uh, gave Jay Leno his first job as a comedian. And so I've known Jay for years and for a long time. I uh, did some ghostwriting for Jay for uh, uh, Popular Mechanics, and I've done that for some other uh, magazines and things. And Jay and I are good friends, and Jay likes to uh, research a car or a motorcycle. And uh, when he feels he knows enough about it, he starts looking for a good one, and he buys it. I can't quite compete on that level, but what I can do is be interested in a particular car or motorcycle and buy the book. So I've got an enormous library, which uh, started back in May of 1954 with the um, with an issue of Road and Track. And uh, over the years, I've, I, I basically have every issue of every American publication from volume one, number one. So Road and Track back to 19... 19- 47 and car and driver from 1955 and motor trend from 49 and so forth and just book after book after book probably a hundred books on bugattis wow. 150 book on books on ferrari uh so i'm it looks a bit cluttered behind me here and I'm sorry <laughs> i can't turn the screen so you can you can see this the stacks but uh uh i i work in an environment that i absolutely love i mean i'm surrounded by books magazines and a few mementos I, I just consider myself very fortunate. And right. 
And I don't yeah. take it for granted. I mean, I work as hard on a short piece for someone as I would on a, on a book. Um, as a committed freelancer, you, um, you don't always know where your next job is going to come from. <laughs> so you, um, you say yes to everything. You work as hard as you can on every assignment. And uh, I've, I've been able to do that for years. And I think I'll just keep doing it. It seems to work. Right, right. No, that's great. I love that overview. And I do have three questions before we move to the Harris sale. The first is, is what's the Salt Lake Bonneville Flats picture behind you over your left corner there, your left shoulder? Well, uh, that's the um, Thames and Leslie um, uh, Streamliner from uh, the, actually that one's Skyland Ford. Uh, this Thames and Leslie picture is over here. Um, if, um, I don't know if I can do this and you can see <laughs> for those of you listening on the podcast you'll have to check out the youtube channel to see the video see these cool pictures behind ken well, uh, behind me are three paintings the top one is the famous pearson brothers coupe that bruce meyer owns uh, the one below it is um is a is bill likes 32 ford roadster which i think is owned by bo bachman and the galpin ford people yep. and that streamliner which uh, is kind of the forerunner of the ken's and leslie car um, I'm not sure that has survived, but uh, hot rods are kind of how I initially got interested in uh, in automobiles. I couldn't really afford, I mean, I did buy that Morgan, but prior to that, uh, and in high school, I was a very committed hot rodder, and I still am with a garage that has a 32 Ford Roadster and a, a 39 Ford with a Chrysler Hemi engine in it. And We also have my wife's uh, 61 Porsche 356B Super 90. So there again, being ecumenical, we have uh, uh, an imported car and a, and a bunch of hot rods. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really cool. Okay, for my second question, it's actually the same as my third question, but if you could only pick one car out of the Peterson, what would it be? And if you could only pick one car out of Jay Leno's garage, what would it be? Boy, that's, that is really tough. Um, <clears throat> let's do Jay Leno's garage first. He has a... Um, a Walker Legrand bodied one of a kind Duesenberg streamlined coupe that was built for um, the Josiah Lilly, uh, the heir to the Lilly pharmaceutical fortune. It's a it's a um, semi streamlined, big, um, very dark blue, almost a blue black uh, coupe with an <clears throat> enormous hood. Jay drives it and says, you know, here comes the landlord. It's just a, <laughs> a really menacing looking car. And I mean, Jay has fabulous stuff, lots of great cars, but that's one that that kind of kind of talks to, uh, talks to me. And where the Peterson is concerned, boy, you know, oh, of course, okay, I would happily take their 1914 Mercer Raceabout, uh, which was a car I was able to help um, Bob Peterson acquire when I was the director. One of the best parts of that job was bidding on cars for Pete uh, at auctions. He didn't like to bid, but he. He liked to buy cars. He could, he could pick significant cars out of a catalog, and uh, I, I was able to help purchase that car for a little over nine hundred thousand dollars in an era where Mercers were, were weren't quite valued that high. Although very soon afterward, they started shooting into the seven-figure range. So I drove that uh, the Mercer uh, on the Pebble Beach tour one year, and again. When you think of Ken Purdy, the fabulous author, really the dean of American auto auto writers, um, he has a whole chapter on Mercers, and he owned a Mercer race about, and he he was so enthusiastic about how this uh, pre World War One sports car 
could be driven almost like a modern car. And I was probably as skeptical as anybody. And you, you can't include the brakes in that. Uh, right. <laughs> two-wheel brakes on the rear wheels that, that actually work better when you're pulling the the e-brake handle than than stepping on the brake pedal but the mercer is nimble and remarkably quick for its time 300 cubic inch motor um smaller than a than a stutz bearcat the steering is right now wherever you want to go you can see the ground under the front wheels um just a remarkable remarkable car and uh, i would happily take that and not ask for anything else well good good i didn't stump you you had that you had that after a little bit. So that's great to know. That's a lot of cool cars to pick from in both collections. And I guess I'll have to ask you the same question for the Hera collection here in a second. But speaking of which, if you would, give an overview of who Mr. Hera was and kind of an overview of the three-part article that you wrote recently for Haggerty. Um, well, Bill Hera was, uh, when people think of Hera's casinos, um, they understand that he was a gambling magnate, if you will, a man who uh, was a uh, one of the more successful pioneers in the Nevada casino industry. Uh, but he was a dyed-in-the-wool car enthusiast. And with the largesse that he was able to uh, uh, to amass uh, with his successful casino business, uh, he, had, he bought cars and cars and cars and motorcycles and engines and boats. Um, at one point, he had well over 1,500 cars, and may have had as many as a thousand or eleven hundred on display. Uh, his um, restoration shops, which were an adjunct to the casino business in Sparks, Nevada, employed over a hundred people to research and restore his cars. And he he restored cars at several different levels. He really believed that people should see a car uh, pretty much the way it had been um, offered from the factory, and no matter what it cost, no matter what the car was worth. They did for these gold-level first-class restorations on a lot of cars, far more perhaps than the cars were worth. Um, he uh, he loved going to car shows. He liked driving his cars. He would work in the casino business in the mornings and then go to his collection in the afternoons. On one such afternoon, I was very lucky to meet him in um, 1967. I was a newly minted naval ensign, and I was... Um, stationed at Treasure Island briefly in San Francisco, and I, I drove my Morgan uh, drophead coupe over to Reno using some discount coupons that I'd, I'd found from the Reno uh, Chamber of Commerce, and I, I had no intention of gambling. I wanted to go to Harris, and I, I went to the museum and uh, looked at cars, and I said to the lady at the desk, you know, is Mr. Harris here today? And she said, yes, he is. You know why you want to know? And I introduced myself and I said, I'm an enthusiast from the East Coast and uh, I'd love to meet him. And she said, well, give me a minute or two. And a couple of minutes later, I was sitting in front of Bill Harris' desk having a a great conversation with him. And he very kindly um, invited me to go look at the unrestored cars, which is the real thrill for uh, enthusiasts. And and he was totally um, open and charming to, uh, to speak with. And you could, his enthusiasm was palpable i mean you know he i asked about certain cars and he you know couldn't wait to say how much he liked this or uh, or that or whatever so he um uh it was a, a privilege to meet him i did the same thing with briggs cunningham um, a couple of months later before i was uh, before i was shipped off to vietnam um, but bill harrow sadly 
uh, passed away at the age of 67. Um, he had an aneurysm and some serious blood uh, issues. Uh, he went to the Mayo Clinic, and doctors, unfortunately, were unable to, uh, uh, to save him. Uh, he, um, he didn't know that he wouldn't survive this operation. I mean, he's certainly had high hopes. But when he passed away, um, here is this enormous collection. And uh, other than one or two enthusiasts, very few enthusiasts on the gambling side of the business, um, Hara was alone at the top of this wonderful pyramid of cars. So when he passed away, he left no specific direction for the cars. He, he was quoted as saying, I can't control what happens to them afterwards, so we'll just sell them. And that's, that's in essence what they did. Now, the, the Hara collection uh, was not a profit center at the, uh, in the casino business. And a lot of his um, accounting people and management people were wondering, why are we spending money on these cars? Uh, over a million dollars a year to maintain the collection back in the 60s, a lot of money. But after he died, or before he died, they, were, they looked to, to monetize some of what they had by, by having a series of auctions, selling off spare parts, cars they didn't need, and so forth. After he passed away, they organized three major auctions in 1984, 85, and 86. They didn't want to put all the cars on the market at once because they thought the market couldn't bear it. They were going to have four auctions, but what became the fourth auction was one sale to General William Lyons uh, for about $32 million, which included a, a uh, Bugatti, right? A Bugatti Royale. He, Hara had two Bugatti Royales. He had a lot of Bugattis, a lot of Franklins, a lot of Duesenbergs. Uh, and a lot of very rare cars. The um, about 175 cars from the um, collection. The whole thing was bought by Holiday Inn. I don't know if I mentioned that. And Holiday Inn uh, were behind the auctions. They didn't realize how much money the cars were worth until they had their first auction. And then they then they really understood they had a, a treasure here. But there was a huge hue and cry. State of Nevada, uh, individuals, car collectors, people wanting to keep the collection together and that was impossible because it was so vast and so expensive but um about 175 cars were saved if you will and given to um uh they established the, what is now the national automotive collection in reno it's a wonderful museum and you could say they had 175 of some of the very best cars in the collection and uh you can go see that uh, today and see pictures of the the glory that was harris if uh uh, if you will. So I was asked uh, by David Zenley uh, to write kind of an oral history of the Hara, uh, of the sales. And the reason being that in the 80s, this was a major turning point. I mean, there were a few auctions. Barrett Jackson, in a smaller way, was operating. But this was the first time some of these cars went for seven figures, and people began to compare them with art sales and realized that automobiles uh, of this nature were extremely valuable and, you know, and would be uh, considered art treasures, if, uh, if you will. There were some great deals to be had by today's standards, although when you talk to, I, I think I interviewed 25 different people and got snippets of quotes, people like David Gooding, who was a young man at the time, whose dad worked for, for, uh, for Hara, collectors like John Mozart and Bruce Meyer, uh, who were um, who were there, um, and they all, uh, my friend Charlie Lemaitre from Massachusetts, they all knew that they were witnessing something pretty extraordinary. And fortunately, there are some videos that have uh, 
survived of the auctions. And uh, they used um, the uh, Dean Cruz. So they, they did a kind of a rapid fire horse auction style, right. which we've become used to with, say, Nikum and, uh, uh, and Barrett Jackson. But every car was no reserve. So people literally from all over the world came to this sale because they knew that they were never going to have a chance to buy cars uh, like this and to buy them at no, everything at no reserve. So it was, it was a very exciting time. And uh, I tried to convey that with the help of all these great people who, uh, who gave me their insights because they were there. And uh, there's nothing like talking to an eyewitness at any event to uh, really get the, uh, the, the reality, the excitement uh, of it. Right, right. Now, the first auction, did that take place in 1983? Is that correct? No, um, I actually had the catalogs here. I mean, there were auctions in 81, 2, and 3 of, of you know, before I everything in, this, in my library. And so here are the three catalogs from the Hera auction. Oh, wow, that's cool. So you got three original catalogs of the Hera auction. Yeah, so these are, um, uh, this is 1984 was the, the first one. This is post they they, um, they began these two years after Hera died, these auctions, to sell off the collection. Um, so here's the 84 catalog, and you can see there's a Duesenberg uh, on the on the cover. There's a Mercer Raceabout. Um, and uh, the second one, they did them about a year apart. Uh, here's the second catalog, and, of course, this has a Packard Boattail Speedster. It's got a, oh, yeah. it's got a, a Vanderbilt Cup uh, Renault. And then this is the last catalog. Although remember, there were four sales again with a Mercer race about a, uh, a Bugatti Berlin Bugatti. Uh, here and uh, an Auburn Speedster. And this green Duesenberg, which you can see if my hand's not in the way, is a <laughs> Murphy long wheelbase disappearing top roadster. <clears throat> and it's owned today by John Mozart, uh, who has a wonderful collection in Palo Alto, California. And what, what made this, I want to say, uh, this project interesting to do is that the University of Nevada interviewed Bill Hara uh, many, many times. And this is a compilation of those interviews. You can see wow. it's a pretty thick book. Uh, so I couldn't ask Bill Hara questions, but I could read that book and, uh, and get a lot of answers in his own words about his car collecting. Uh, the university published this book too, just called Every Light Was On, and this is all the people who worked for Bill Hara talking about it. So they, and that was in period for the most part. That's a great title. Every light was on. <laughs> Spending money. <laughs> uh, you know, the reason that part of that was true is Bill Hara from, I learned a lot about his, um, what he was like as a casino operator too. Um, part of that was from Leon Mandel's great book um, about Hara. And also this one, which is called Playing the Cards That Are Dealt. This was written by a man um, named Mead Dixon, who was the number two guy uh, at Hara and who was very much a casino and businessman, not a car guy. So you got that other perspective here. And those are just a few of, there's another stack of books here that I, I use. But the, the good part of it all was to understand him because his approach to the casino business was something that carried over into his car restorations. And what I mean by that is he wanted everyone to have a really first-class experience. As soon as he could move up from the, the, the kind of rough beginnings uh, of, of his early casinos, he wanted everything to be, when you, when you went to a Hara casino, and I can say this from having gone to, to one, you 
realized you were in a very classy operation. He was the first to insist on having two bathrooms in most of the rooms. His comment, and it's right in the quotes here, he said, you know, a uh, lady's getting ready for dinner. The guy wants to go out to, um, he, they should each have their own bathroom. And uh, when Holiday Inns took over the Harrod operation, there were a number of things that Harrod did that were much more expensive than Holiday Inn would, you know, would ever do. And this was one of them. So whether it was a, a first-class experience in a casino or a Pebble Beach best-of-show winning restoration, whatever Bill Harrow wanted to do, he did the best that he could. And that, that money could buy. Yeah, and I was actually, I think, 10 years old. I actually saw the collection in 1980. And as a 10-year-old, first time to Vegas, camping cross-country from Jacksonville to Seattle, it was just all stars and lights to me. Like, I could tell it was a lot of cool cars, you know. I just remember it was a gorgeous setting. That's about it. So it did impress me as a 10-year-old, but I I didn't take any notes or knew I was looking at a Bugatti or Duesenberg or any of that. Uh, But it was very impressive from what I remember as a child. Um, I did want to ask you, does anybody have a complete list of cars? I guess you would have them in the catalogs, wouldn't you? They, uh, they published these two catalogs when Harrow was still alive. Um, and everything that he had up until, I think this is 19, I'm not sure what year this one is without taking too much time to look. But, but every, every car is in here and most of them are illustrated. Wow. So, um, yes, they, they, uh, they definitely did that. So, uh, and there were also, I'll just reach one more, Leon Mandel wrote this huge book which John Lamb photo wow. of many, many of the cars in the, uh, you know, in, in the collection. So um, uh, the records definitely exist. And of course they kept these amazing files when they restored cars, every car, uh, the minute Harrow acquired it, everything they had on that car was put in a file and everything they developed on the car went, went to that file and the cars were sold with these files. So to this day, because a Harrow restoration was generally pretty high zoot um people will still you'll see references at auction that this was an ex-hara car and if it was a a a gold star hara restoration they also had other levels they had a a red star for a car that wouldn't be driven but was going to be on display but if it was the gold star hara car and it came with that that folder they'd put together you knew you got something special and people still talk about these cars when they're sold if it's an ex-hara car uh, it'll add to the value and people expect to uh to have that little record book uh, with it. Yeah, I was going to ask you if there were different levels of restoration. So you said there is a gold and there is a red. A lot of thought went into each restoration, and Bill Harrod took a personal interest. Uh, they uh, they had a sequence of when the cars would be restored, but sometimes he would come in, according to, um, to, to some of the folk who testified, if you will, in these uh, oral histories, and say, well, no, I really want that one. And then he'd say, well, why haven't we done that? And someone would, and he'd be told, like Clyde Wade, his collection manager, well, you wanted that one first a couple of weeks ago, and that's why we moved it around and, and so forth. Um, he was, uh, I wouldn't call him eccentric, but he loved to drive fast. He was one of the first Ferrari uh, dealers, and then he became a Ferrari distributor. He loved to go visit Enzo Ferrari, and they liked to have him there. Um, he put a... Uh, 365 GTC four engine and driveline in a Jeep uh, Grand Cherokee, which he called the Gerari. And uh, he would terrorize the road from uh, uh, Reno to Lake Tahoe. Uh, there probably wasn't anything that was as quick. Um, and he, um, uh, 
he loved driving fast and he, he hated getting tickets, uh, but he understood that was part of the rules of the game. But people knew who he was in the area and he was a huge benefactor as an employer. So uh, I don't know that he, he, he may have gotten stopped a few times, but, you know, Nevada doesn't really have a speed limit or didn't in that, right. in that area. So right. he was pretty free to drive the wheels off whatever he drove. I know it's been said this collection could never be repeated again and, you know, never say never. But when I started looking at the cars that you've mentioned and I've read in the article, I do see how this would be very difficult to repeat. So if you would, could you talk to just the two Bugattis for a second? So I know there were only, what, seven made, six known to exist? Six uh, Royales. It's probably thought that there was a seventh. And there's even a fictional book called The Seventh Royale, but there there were only six. Okay, and now one of those hasn't sold publicly in a very long time. What's the estimated value, would you guess, a Bugatti Royale would bring nowadays? Oh, well, you know, they're, they're different body styles. I mean, Henry Ford has a Ludwig Weinberger Cabriolet that I think is one of the most handsome uh, of those, those cars. Um, you know, if, if Ferrari GTOs are in the $40, $50 million range, maybe... 25 to 30 for a Royale. I mean, I, I just, I really don't know. Um, uh, let me, let me rethink that for a moment because uh, Peter Mullen, the um, type 57 SC Atlantic coupe that he has um, with a silent partner. Um, I think they paid over $50 million for that car. The question really right. is, you know, would you rather have a Royale, which is a you know giant fire truck of a, of a, a Bugatti with an engine that, uh, that they used in railroad trains after they couldn't sell enough Royals or a nimble, elegant, wonderfully stylish car like an Atlantic. Uh, so where they fit in the hierarchy, you know, I don't know, but we're talking tens of millions of dollars, certainly. Sure. Yep. Yep. And some of the other cars I just wanted to read off here, cause I know some of these went, like you said, to the Lions collection, uh, a lot of Duesenbergs. One article I, I read had maybe nine, up to 19 Duesenbergs in the collection. It was a whole lot of Duesenbergs. A 1929 Miller Indianapolis race car that became a prototype for later models. Obviously, that's a very special car. Um, and then there's some other stuff that maybe some folks haven't heard about. The DuPont Speedster, some of the DuPont cars, those were in that collection as well, weren't they? Well, they were. And I'll talk about DuPonts, but can I go back to the Miller for just a sec? Sure. Yeah, let's go back to the and Miller. That Miller is a 91 front drive, um, and that particular car was one of two. That car is now in the Smithsonian Institution. Um, it's the Packard Cable Special. It's one of two cars that Leon Duray, the, um, uh, who was, wasn't French but liked, liked to use a, a French name as a race driver in the 20s and set a number of, uh, sat on the pole a number of times in Indy but never, never won the race. Uh, that was one of two cars that he and Pete Apollo and a couple of other drivers took over to Europe to race. It was kind of ill-suited because it only had a three-speed transaxle. It's a front-wheel drive car. It really didn't have the brakes for a European road course, but it was really fast, and it set records at uh, at Monza. So think about this. A 91 cubic inch, a liter and a half, um, twin cam, straight eight, centrifugally supercharged, running on some type of fuel mix, putting out over 230 horsepower in that area. Yeah. capable of nearly 150 miles an hour, depending on what the gearing was. So the guy who became most interested in those two race cars was Ettore Bugatti. And he bought the boat. He bought both cars and uh, took them back to Molsheim, and he bought them for one particular reason, the twin cam cylinder heads. He essentially copied the twin cam heads for his uh, Type 49s, Type 50s, and uh, subsequently Type uh, uh, 
Type 57s, and never used the cars after that. So they languished in Molsheim until Griff Borgeson, who was an uh, editor, car and driver, and a, a scholar, managed to buy those two cars. One went to the Indy Museum, where it still is today. The other subsequently went to um, a man named Bob Rubin, who had it restored in, uh, <clears throat> at the uh, Leiden Restoration Shop in Lahaska, Pennsylvania. And then subsequently it went to the Smithsonian Institution. So uh, with a lot of the Harrah cars, you can kind of trace where they were. And that particular Miller uh, was one of the best. And a, a shameless plug here, I, I've put together a class of Miller racing cars, for the Pebble Beach Concours this year. And we are trying really hard to get that Miller uh, from the Smithsonian. <laughs> we do have its twin from the Indy Museum, and it will, the Leon DeRay car will, uh, will be there. So then we, we jumped to uh, the DuPont, and uh, DuPont, they, they made a number of um, wonderfully sporty automobiles. DuPont, uh, along with Chrysler and Stutz, raced at the 24-hour of Le Mans in the late 20s, uh, and their, their cars are very distinctive looking. They have a very unusual grill and uh, kind of vestigial, if you will, uh, racy looking fenders. That particular DuPont went to a, an owner in Florida, and then it went to the Peterson, uh, the black, uh, the black DuPont Speedster, and it's in the, it's still in the Peterson uh, uh, today. I didn't have time with this story, but I do a little bit of studying, and um, many of the Harrah cars ended up in, in top collections around the world, and uh, uh, that, the DuPont, it's a good example. Yeah, it's really amazing to hear you kind of piece together where these cars went since the, since the sale. You know, that's really neat, or even the history before the sale. And one thing I did notice is that there were some complete collections, it says here. Uh, basically, every model of Franklin's 1903 to 1934, every model of Packard's 1900 through 1958, every model of, or every Ford from 1903 through 1977. Is there anything, because I, I have one in my head I'm thinking of, I haven't seen it in any of the articles here. Are there any cars or brand that you're surprised was not in his collection? Obviously, a lot of this stuff is pre 19 well, 1950, but he does have some 50s and 60s cars in there. Is there anything that pops out in your head? Like, why didn't he get that car or this car? I, like, I don't mention, I don't see any Ferraris on the list per se. There were. Okay, there were. Okay. We had quite a few. Uh, my friend Mark um, Smith bought the ex Anna Magnani uh, Ferrari 195, I think it's a Vignali Coupe, for like $45,000 in one of these sales. And uh, um, so, there, yeah, there definitely were, there were Ferraris. Uh, that's... Uh, that's a tough question. He didn't, I would have thought he might have more Delahays and Delages, you know, some of these Fagoni and Pulaski cars. There were a couple, but uh, that didn't seem to be an area where he, uh, where he focused much, but he did have, you know, 540K Mercedes Benzes. Uh, I mean, again, he really studied the history of the automobile and he knew what to go after. And he had people literally all over the world looking for, uh, for cars for him. Um, David Gooding's father was one of these correspondents in the Los Angeles area, and they liked the reports that Ken Gooding wrote on the various cars. I mean, he would, uh, the drill was that one of these lookouts would call uh, or, or tell them, uh, gee, I found a Mercer, um, a uh, Series G race about, and, and they'd say, well, tell us more, get us pictures and so forth. Uh, when they could, they didn't really want people to know that it was Harris who was buying it because they were afraid the price would be boosted and oftentimes it was but uh, david gooding's dad ken 
wrote such great reports that they brought him in and they put him in charge of the research uh, facility and he was part of the collection management. So David um, grew up in the Hara collection and uh, little wonder he went to work for Christie's and NRM and, and started his own uh, auction auction firm. Yeah, it sounds like just the most fascinating dream job. I'm sure that would have been a job you would have liked to have had back in the day as well. Just I mean, you know. any enthusiast uh, uh, would definitely have uh, wanted to wanted to work there. And and Harrow was, I mean, he was a tough manager. But apparently, where the cars were concerned, you know, he he was just the same car crazy kid that we all are. As we wrap up here, I wanted to find out what is one of the main impacts you see from that sale. I would assume one of them is is the kind of the evolution of the collector car auction industry would probably be one of those. Could you expand on that if you agree? And are there any other kind of big impacts the sale had that have gone through today? Well, uh, it's certainly uh, the auction industry had begun a little time before. I mean, in the early 1970s, I went to Kirk White's auctions in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. He had two back to back and I hunt a little bit on the other side of the room. I can find the catalogs for those. But uh, And he had Omar Landis, who had been auctioning off horses in Idaho or I- Iowa somewhere. So that style was, was going. But I think the lasting one of the lasting effects of the Hera auctions was to tell a, a fairly large audience, not just car enthusiasts, that the automobile as an art piece uh, was something to be reckoned with. Uh, was worthy of, um, of restoration, worthy of preservation, and uh, and worth in some instances uh, a lot of money. Uh, and I think right. that uh, that that word of some of these sales, certainly the Bugatti sale, reached outside the car hobby. I mean, uh, the insiders all had a, a feeling and knew and and watched the values going up. But for the first time now, people were who weren't car hobbyists were saying, "Wow, that Duesenberg sold for." hundreds of thousands of dollars that Bugatti sold for millions there's something to this and and of course we've never looked back uh now um John Mozart told me a funny story uh, John Mozart spent 22 million dollars a few years ago to buy an, a Duesenberg SSJ at a gooding auction that, that had belonged to uh, Gary Cooper and John said he was one of the people I interviewed and he said uh, you know when I was at the auction and I saw what these prices were he said, I was just kind of starting out in business. I, I could buy a couple of cars, but not many. I realized I was going to have to earn a lot more money if I was going to be in this car hobby. Now, wasn't there a second car that Clark Gable owned, the SSJ? Well, it, it's uh, speculative as to whether he actually owned that car. Um, it's owned by uh, the family of a now-deceased collector in Chicago. But there were two of them, uh, two identical SSJs and uh, short wheelbase. 400 horsepower, twin carburetor, supercharged uh, speedsters. And the the car that John Mozart bought was uh, unrestored, just beautifully preserved. And uh, it was in the the Revs Institute, Miles Collier's collection for many, many years. It had come from Briggs Cunningham. Briggs, I don't remember where Briggs acquired it, but but in that era, the movie studios – uh, you know, this is before television, and but but the publicists love to have to to show their movie stars living the life of movie stars. So right. uh, Rudolph Valentino drove his, his son of Fraschini's and uh, many Hollywood stars: Jimmy Cagney, uh, Joey Brown, 
Clark Gable, Gary Cooper, they all drove Duesenbergs. I mean, that was the car and they're pictured with their with their cars, but cars were also given to many of these stars to um, to be seen in. And so people, could, right. you know, if you went to the movies in those days, there was 15 or 20 minutes of newsreel stuff and publicity. And so you would see uh, your favorite Hollywood star in some great car in a glamorous way. And so that's that's kind of what was what was done with them. But uh, Gable did own a um, uh, a Bowman and Schwartz bodied uh, Duesenberg JN uh, with uh, twin rear mounted spares. It's currently owned by Sam and Emily Mann. Uh, it's just an absolutely beautiful car. But he didn't he didn't own the Speedster, to my knowledge. Uh, but but um, but Cooper did. So is that other SSJ still up in the Chicago area? Should I go knock on some garage doors and see if I can find it? No, we know where it is. It's just... Oh, okay. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, what's funny about Duesenberg, they probably made somewhere around 470 cars. A surprising number has have survived. And you, you have people like Randy Ema in Orange, California, the famous restorer, who has all the Duesenberg factory files, and Randy knows we're where they all are i think so it's great that they've survived i mean these these are cars that should should live on forever they're just masterpieces now is there anything else concerning the Haggerty article that you would like to cover oh you know i wish that we'd uh, it, it started almost turning into a book david zenley um he he had a colleague of mine named joe lorio helped immensely and joe's name doesn't appear in the article but um we were all overwhelmed with the interviews and all, and and yet there were more stories we could have we could have told. It just wasn't, you know, there wasn't room for uh, for everything. I, I was thrilled to do it because I think it gave people an opportunity who maybe didn't know much about Bill Hara to uh, to learn what a what a pioneering collector he was. And uh, I just think that's it's just a good thing to, to because you know as subsequent generations come along, they don't know a lot about. Uh, uh, the collectors who were the the important pioneers, the the um, the James Meltons and the Cameron Pecks and the Briggs Cunninghams, and I just think it's it's nice for people to look back and realize that they're they have been enthusiasts for old cars almost before they became old. The topic spanned three different articles, so if we need to make this into three different podcasts, you just let me know, okay? <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today, Ken. It's been a real joy and pleasure getting to know you a little bit more, but also talking about the Hera Collection. Thank you, Greg. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.